Okay, so let's get started. I'd like to ask the question, why a class on the Trinity? As a matter of fact, most of us would say, I'm sure, I already believe in the Trinity. We all do, don't we? Do we really need a class on the Trinity? Well, apparently you think so because you're... (laughs) Because you're here, (laughs) and I'm glad you're here. And uh, the real question is, can we benefit from a class on the Trinity? And uh, Tom Wright reminded me that uh, he did a short class about six or seven years ago uh, on the Trinity, and he encouraged me to go ahead and do this class because he thought it's a subject that's neglected, if not misunderstood, and critical for the church today. And so that's why we're doing it. And before we get started, let me just say that I want the class to be enjoyable. I want it to be edifying to you and primarily honoring to our triune God. And I would like to ask Mark Trigstead if you would open us in prayer. Amen. I've uh, planned about seven sessions. And I've got about 140 some odd slides. What I don't know is how fast we're going to be able to progress through the material. And so some, if we run, run uh, long on time, I'll go ahead and start the next session. If we run short on time, we'll pick up where we left off the following session. But currently I'm planning on seven weeks. And, uh, I hope that's something that you guys can uh, stick with. We're going to start off tonight with just kind of a general introduction to the Trinity. I know that uh, uh, you you all supposedly know what the Trinity is, but I'm going to ask you some specific questions when we get into it here. We're going to try and learn a little more about the Trinity, what what value it is for us in our Christian life, in our church life, our personal life, and uh, talk about how the bottom line is, in a sense, it's unfathomable, and we don't want to deny that. So, we're going to start off with a little comic relief, only it's comic belief. What is the Trinity? It's the name of the lead female character in the Matrix movie trilogy. Does anybody get that? Some of you get it. It's something only Catholics believe in. In fact, a professor was telling me he actually had an undergrad student in his theology 101 class ask that question. I thought, I thought we didn't believe that Catholic stuff. Why are we going to talk about the Trinity? It's the name of several girls-only Episcopal colleges. <laughs> or all of the above. Actually, they're all true except uh, B, <laughs> because it's not something only Catholics believe in. <laughs> and uh, just for a credit, uh, this came from uh, Michael Bird's uh, volume on evangelical theology. That's how he starts off his discussion of the Trinity. So if it's not humorous to you, I'll blame it on him and I won't attempt anymore. Okay, the doctrine of the Trinity. What I'd like to do is we all have in our mind, hopefully, some succinct way of stating what is the Trinity? 
So I've put some uh, index cards on the table, and those of you uh, who have a pencil, I'd like for you to just take 60 seconds and write down uh, succinctly, in your own words, how would you describe the Trinity if someone were to ask? Does, uh, I don't want you to write 25 words or 30 words deal. Just in your own in your own words, how would you succinctly state it? And then I'll be calling on patience to read hers. <laughs> You're not writing it down. Okay. Most everybody got something down. So now I would like for you to raise your hand if you would be willing to read what you wrote on your card for everybody to hear. And we'll just hear what several people have to say, how several people would describe it. And then we'll go from there. Robert. Doctrine that the true God is just one God, but exists in three different persons, equal to one another in rank, attributes, and glory. Very good. Good class. Yeah, I guarantee you're going to learn something in this class. Uh, okay, who else would like to? Uh, Bill? Good. Huh? I say he added those Mm hmm. Good. Can I tell me your first name? Mary. Mary, thanks. God is made up of three parts, like a tripod. It takes all three legs where it won't stand. Interesting way of thinking about it. Anybody else? Dawn, yes. I wrote the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit together are the Trinity and are the triune God. Good. Very good. Anybody else want to venture a... Don? Mine comes from the hymn. Good. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. One essence, three persons. One essence, three persons. Anybody else? Yes, Steve. I say what he said. Could I add on to that? I don't understand it, but I believe it. <laughs> I think I think we're all. The further we go, we're going to all eventually get to the point where we say, you know what? This is ultimately a mystery, and we can't completely understand it. That's very true. Anybody else? Okay, well, I'm going to uh, show you what uh, Benjamin B. Warfield stated when he wanted to uh, describe the Trinity. He says that uh, there is but one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each a distinct person. And the reason I have this up here is because scholars across the board will use this quote to describe the Trinity. Because he goes on to say, 
In the above three statements, we have enunciated the doctrine in its completeness. And I think what he's given us is a minimalist definition. And there are some critical things that he left unsaid, which we will get to as the class goes on. But that's very true, and that matches what most of you are saying. And most of you are saying things that are true. But as we go through this class, I'll, I hope to have you think a little deeper and think a little broader so that some other things come to mind when we talk about the Trinity. A poll was done by an outfit called Lifeway Research for Ligonier Ministries in uh, October of 2014. The results, at least part, part of the results, were published in Christianity Today back in, at that time in 2014. And what they did was they polled uh, professing evangelicals in five or six cities, I think mainly toward on the east, uh, east of the Mississippi, but they polled professing evangelicals. Are you a Bible-believing evangelical Christian? Yes. Would you answer some questions? 96% said they believe in the Trinity. That's close. That's pretty good. Because you know, you, you know who they've really asked, so you've got to expect some errors in there. 88% said they believe Jesus is fully God and fully man. We've lost some. <laughs> We've lost some there. 22% said that God the Father was more divine than Jesus, and 9% weren't sure. So there's, add those together, you got 30% that are missing something here. 16% said that Jesus was the first creature created by God, and 11% weren't sure. This last one's what got me. 51% said the Holy Spirit was a force, not a person, while an additional 7% weren't sure. So there's obviously some level of misunderstanding evident among professing evangelicals, not necessarily CBCers, but you can see how evangelicalism at, at large is uh, lacking in their uh, understanding. And actually, I'm, I'm not surprised because we, we believe in the Trinity. We read enough to, to think we've got a grasp on what it's, it means. And then we set it over here on the shelf and go on with our church life, our spiritual life, our prayer life. And without really calling on it. We visited it every, every once in a while. Now I'm not, again, not talking about CBC. I'm talking about evangelicalism at large. But uh, two, two buddies of mine were, uh, went, to lunch, went to breakfast together, both Christians, both of them actually scholars. And uh, they were eating breakfast and theology course came up and uh, the subject of the Trinity came up. And, and one of the guys said, you know, I go to a church that has Trinity in the name. He said, yeah, I know. He said, I've been there 13 years and have never heard a sermon or a teaching on the Trinity. And so that's, that's reality. 
The doctrine's off. Uh, this just reiterates what I just said. It's often treated as an appendage rather than something that's integral to our faith and to our church life, to our worship. But the reason to study the Trinity is much deeper and more personal than memorizing a set of statements to describe it. I shouldn't have used the word define because you cannot define it. You can only describe it in creaturely words based on what we're given in the scripture. But the reason to study it is more than just being able to state what B.B. Warfield said. The significance of the Trinity is that God has shown us that He is one God in three persons. He's given us that insight in the Scriptures. And it will have great practical relevance and application for us as His people. Anything that God tells us about Himself should be considered vitally important. The more we understand about Him, the more we'll understand ourselves and the world in which we live. Why? Because we're created in His image and we live in His creation. Something as central and significant as the Trinity must inform how we view Him and how we live our lives in Him. So I'm just going to touch on a few things here to try and underscore the significance for us as Christians. It informs the gospel. And when I say inform, I mean it gives substance to the gospel. I've said in other places that the Trinity is the engine that drives the gospel. Without the Trinity, there is no gospel. It shapes our prayers. We worship a triune God. The fact that He is our triune God shapes our prayers. And it is the ground for our worship. I want to go into each of these just a little bit more in, in a little bit more detail. I'm suggesting that the Trinity is necessary for, for a coherent understanding of the gospel and redemption. The Father sends the Son. The incarnate Son is able to provide an atonement because He is both God and man. And the Holy Spirit is directly responsible for repentant sinners' new birth in Christ through regeneration and the believer's life journey of sanctification. That's the gospel. The Father sends the Son. The Son provides redemption. The Holy Spirit unites us with Christ. How can you explain the gospel, or how can you understand the gospel without recognizing a triune God? It shapes our prayers. If you remember in Hebrews chapter 4, Christ as our high priest gives us access to God. Only through him may we boldly approach the throne of grace. And we need to realize that prayer is entering into divine dialogue with God. And if you think about it that way, we're, all, we're the only creatures in the universe that can enter into a divine dialogue with God. That should add something special when you think about our prayers. And there's a double movement to it. God gives Himself to us through the Son. 
in the Holy Spirit. And we respond with our praise, confession, petition, made in the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Him through the Son, in the Spirit to us, us in the Spirit through the Son to Him. We can only pray because of the Trinity. As I mentioned earlier, Christ is the means we have access to the Father. We can only pray because of the Holy Spirit. When we pray in the Spirit, we pray past ourselves, beyond ourselves. For, as the Scriptures say, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And how wonderful a thought that is. Even when I don't know exactly how to pray or what to pray for, I'm communing with God. The Spirit that lives in me is speaking groanings too deep for words that the Father understands. That's awesome. And the Trinity is the ground for our worship. Both the ground of worship and the proper expression of worship are tied necessarily to the oneness and the threeness of God. We often hear people say, I, or I have heard people say, I love my Father God. I love my Lord Jesus. You don't hear people say, I love my Trinity. I love my triune God. But when we think of one, we should think of all three. And we think of the three, we recognize that is one God. And that's who we're praying to. That's who we're worshiping. It finds a necessary grounding in God himself, in his being, in his character. It finds its rightful expression in response to the revelation of the one God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In worship, God desires to draw us into communion with Him, to share in the Son's communion with the Father by the Spirit. There the three are again. To become like Jesus, the true image bearer of God. And we are to be true image bearers. And in our worship, to share in the Son's communion with the Father by the Spirit, our joy is to be made full. Our God will be glorified. Now, having said that, I, I hope it gives you just a little feeling for how the Trinity inf- impacts us all the way through. And a lot of times we don't stop and recognize it. That's, that's all I'm trying to say, give you an idea of some things to think about. But as was mentioned earlier, there is a sense in which the doctrine is unfathomable. Admittedly, we cannot completely comprehend it or fully plumb the depths of the Trinity. We're always going to reach a point where creaturely words about a transcendent God are inadequate. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, say the Scriptures, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's always going to be the case. God has communicated with man truly, but not exhaustively. He has condescended and communicated with us truly, 
but, but not in a way that's going to answer every question we have, especially about his triune nature. The secret things belong to the Lord in Deuteronomy 29. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, he tells us all we need to know. In plain enough language, he gives us all we need to know. But he doesn't tell, tell us all we might want to know. And that's okay. <laughs> the doctrine of the Trinity is part of the revelation of God who is infinite to those who are finite. And as we go, go through these sessions, I may say this on more than one occasion, but I want to emphasize the fact that God is transcendent. And that means he's totally other. And when we, when we try to think of God in terms of ourselves, uh, that, that's where we go wrong. Because he's not like us. We're creatures. He is a transcendent God. And we must, in our thinking, keep the distinction between the creator and the creatures. And we're the creatures. Uh, I think it was uh, Karl Barth uh, at one time said something that I thought was was uh, pretty significant, and he said it in such a way that it always stuck in my head. He said, God is God, not man writ large. And it sticks to you because it sounds funny, but if you think about it, what's he saying? God is totally other. We start thinking about him in our terms, making him bigger, better, more glorious, infinitely bigger, better, more glorious, but he's like us. We're making him man writ large, and that's not him. It's like God is not a genus or a species of a genus. Do you know what I'm saying? Like dogs are a a species of mammals and and God's not categorized like that what we tend to think is if you have a a genus here and at this end you have rational thinking beings you might put man mankind and we want we want this genus of rational thinking beings to include God we're we're willing to put him way over here But see, he's not of the genus rational thinking beings. We are. He's not. He's not anything like us. And we need to remember that. Yeah. We might say that God made us in his image. Romans 1 says we make God in our uh, image. And that's what all religions are doing. Right. They're making God in, in our image. Right. We bear the image of God. There are things about us that help us relate to God. But like Don says, our problem is we're always trying to make God in our image. What that's doing is that's breaking the distinction between creator and creature. Very good, Don. Thanks. And there are some verses that talk about us becoming like Christ and... Uh, but but you're right. We'll never be 
God. We'll never get past the genus of mankind into the genus where God is because God is not in a genus. He's totally other. We'll never be in that category of totally other. Okay, the Trinity ultimately remains a mystery. However, the biblical evidence presents us with a triune God. And we're not going to get into it this week, but we're going to do some uh, studying in the Scriptures and showing verses that talk about the persons of the Trinity uh, in the next session, I think. If the Scriptures teach it, we can know it and know it is true even if we can't fully comprehend it. Now, um, I have a couple of slides I'm going to present, which I did have in a later session, but I wanted to pull them up and and put them here at the expense of some other slides because I think it's important since since we've tried to describe the Trinity and we've used the word person, I want to I want to give you some caveats that you can have in mind uh, as we go forward because I think it's a, a point where there's some misunderstanding and a point that uh, needs needs discussing right here at the beginning. And that's using the word person. When I gave uh, Benjamin B. Warfield's uh, what I call a minimal uh, definition, I put the word person in parentheses. He didn't do that. I did that. I added that because I wanted to talk about this. Scholars from the early church fathers through the medieval church, the Reformation, up till the 20th century, almost universally agree that person is an imperfect word and in a lot of cases it's just unfortunate. And the reason is because when you're talking about distinctions in the Godhead and you use the word person, people automatically think of person the way we think of person. In our way of thinking, one person is one being. One distinct being. Right? Every person is a distinct individual with his own individualized human nature. He has his own being. He has his own personalized human nature. And that's true of every person. But in God, there are not three individuals or three beings alongside each other, or separate from one another. So when we think of person the way we normally use it, we're automatically thinking wrong about the Trinity. Our triune God is one being with one divine nature. When we think of three persons, we think of three beings. But in God, there is only one being. We see personal distinctions within the Trinity, yet these personal distinctions are generically and numerically one divine being. There is one God. And when we start using the person, and, and, and in our mind we're, we're thinking of like, normal use of the word person, we end up thinking of God as three beings, which is what? Which tends to be what? Three gods. Three gods. Tritheism. 
there are th- three manners of subsistence. I know this is a technical word, but it's a word that's used so you don't have to say persons. There are three manners of subsistence in God, but each person occupies the same divine space. And what that means is, there's a pie with three pieces. Let's call them Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What have we done there? We have said there are three parts to God. The Father is one part. The Son is one part. The Holy Spirit is one part. And when you put them together, you've got God. Unfortunately, dear brothers and sisters, that's wrong. They are each wholly, fully God and they occupy the same divine space. And if that's hard to comprehend, join the club. But we, what we need to say to ourselves is, but I should not say they are three different parts of God. Self-distinctions in the divine being are evident. In the scriptures, they refer to each other as I, you, and he. Right? Jesus refers to the Father as you, refers to himself as I, refers to the Holy Spirit as he. Yet there is only one God. And when we call, talk about three persons in the Trinity, we're talking about persons in a, in a unique sense. A sense which does not say the Father, the Son, and the Spirit each has his own being, each has his own nature, and just happens to be fully in agreement with the other three, and so there you have one God. In Genesis, God let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Right. Notice it says our likeness. Plural there. In summary, let me just say this. As Christians, the Trinity is significant to our daily lives and our church life. Even though the Trinity is ultimately a mystery, Scripture urges us to know God. In First Chronicles, for example, this is uh, talking to Solomon, but it says, Know the God of your fathers and serve Him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. The Scripture urges us to know our God. We must realize, finally, based on those last two charts, that the word person, referring to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, does not carry the same meaning as human persons. And that's, to me, that's the bottom line I'd like you to ponder, take with you, think about as we go forward. Yes, sir. I'm uh, trying to wrap my mind about this. So I got something here I'd like to compare it to. We have a pie. You have one third of it's blueberry, blackberry, and raspberry. Three, three separate sections. Instead of that, you got a pie with raspberry, blueberries, and uh, blackberry in it. They're all mixed together. Is, am, am I getting close? You're closer. Closer, that's good. You're closer. Yeah, that's right. Because you're not saying that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are different parts. You got three berry pies. You have a three berry pie. Right. So, any any questions? Any other thoughts? 
let's let's go ahead and take some time for questions. And then we're going to eat some cookies from Mary Lee. When you talked about divine space a while ago, that's that's a little bit misleading because God is omnipresent everywhere. He's not restricted to some certain geography. Right, and when and I was counting on the adjective divine. They occupy the same divinity. Any other questions or thoughts? Words are failing us. Apparently. I know when Jesus cried out on the cross, he referred to the Father as Eloi. Eloi, which I think is singular because uh, when we hear God referred to as Elohim in the I am, I know it pluralizes the word as I understand it. Like the two cherubim, there's a cherub and a cherub together called cherubim, which are on the Ark of the Covenant. So I'm assuming that God being called Elohim is a plural description of him. He's also called Eli. I mean, I, I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can do that. Yeah. El, Elohim is not a plural of plurality. The word Elohim is a plural of majesty. Saying he's God and very God. Plural, his plural majesties. Yes. The Lord, he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings and God of God. That's what a Greek teacher told me once. That's what it referred to. Yeah, it's a plural of majesty. It's not a plural of plurality. But since he was a kid, I didn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Any Anybody else? Joe? One significant factor about the Trinity, Jimmy, for us as believers today is Jesus himself said after the resurrection that he was, in a sense, anxious to leave so that the help would come. Right. I had one over here. You read that Isaac Newton was not a Trinitarian? I, I, I'm personally unaware of that. I think I've read that also. Can someone be saved if they don't believe in the Trinity? Any other comments? Any other thoughts to answer that? Well, I don't want to answer that. Well, I think it's a good question. Do you have to believe in the Trinity in order to be saved? I think you do. I think so too. Because so much of the so much of the Bible has to do with God the Father sent the Son who provided redemption which is applied uh, by the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can't read the Bible without that. I would say this much in agreement, Don, is I don't think you can understand the gospel without believing the Trinity. At what point do you believe and what do you know when you first believe? Do you know all about the Trinity? It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Do you know all that? No, but if you believe, you come to know about the Trinity. And when you're confronted with the Trinity, if you're born again, you more than likely won't be rejecting it. Right. He had the concept of a redeemer. Mark? Perhaps a better way to put it is, can you reject the Trinity and still be about That may be the best Right. Thanks, Mark. Yes, ma'am. 
not a good question to ask me. Because <laughs> I don't know. 50, it was 50 days, hence the word Penta, Pentecost. Yeah. No, I, I don't actually know. Okay, so next time we're going to start looking at proving the basic concept. And we're going to look at what anti-Trinitarians say, and we're going to address these points next time. They say, well, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. The Christian Trinity, the concept itself, is self-contradictory. The concept is not biblical. And the Trinity was invented in the 4th century. The early church knew nothing of it. But those are typical objections that, that are thrown at you right off the bat. Most of them can be dispensed pretty easy, but we're going to go over those next, next time. So I hope, I hope you've enjoyed the class and I hope you enjoy Marilee's cookies and, and we'll come back next week. <laughs>